morning, St. Barnabas. We might have the first slide, Hannah. Oh, good. Well, right now you're looking at the um, Church of the Abbey of St. Etienne in Normandy in France. Um, it was begun by Duke William of Normandy in the year 1066, um, the very same year that the very same Duke took his Norman army across the English Channel, invaded English, def uh, invaded England, defeated the English, and took the English throne for himself to become King William I of England, otherwise known as William the Conqueror. And when this church was being built a thousand years ago now, uh, Europe was just on the cusp of a great revolution in engineering and architecture that saw the rise of these massive Gothic cathedrals. Um, and in fact, Europe is now full of this legacy of great big churches, uh, feats of engineering, in fact, that were only recently surpassed. So another church in Normandy, the Cathedral of Rouen, which was begun in 1145, so 1145 it was begun, wasn't completed until 1878, at which time it was one of the world's two tallest buildings. And they held that record uh, until in the 20th century the Americans started throwing up big cathedrals. Uh, not big cathedrals, big skyscrapers. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, when you go back and look at the Middle Ages, this the 11th to the sort of 16th centuries, um, Christianity uh, has a bit of a troubled legacy because not only do we have great feats of engineering and architecture, great art, uh, the gift of the university to Western society, the gift of the hospital, um, this was Christianity that also gave us ooh, the Crusades. This was a big institutional church, intimately married uh, to worldly power and wealth. And these cathedrals were built by powerful lords, uh, not only as symbols of their piety, but usually symbols of their status. Um, and the bishops and the archbishops that presided in these cathedrals were often themselves members of the nobility, usually very wealthy. Some of them commanded their own private armies. Some of them went off to war and killed people. And when you start looking at the history of this time, frankly, the, uh, the politics and the methods of warfare practiced by these great lords of the church, uh, lords secular and lords spiritual, um, some of these lords start to make Vladimir Putin look like a bit of a Santa Claus in comparison. It is hard to see as you examine the middle church, the, the church of the Middle Ages, it is hard at times to recognise how this church could possibly be the bearer of the good news of Jesus. Well, closer to our time and much closer to home, the Australian media has really turned its attention um, to big churches of another kind. Hillsong has been in the news in the last year or two, um, as has the whole mega church movement um, around the world, in fact. Uh, we are hearing multiple stories of sexual abuse, sexual harassment, emotional abuse, uh, financial abuse being aired in the media. And what we are discovering is one after another uh, of uh, charismatic celebrity pastors who, as one podcaster puts it, are big on charisma, but short on character. People who have built empires around their own personal brand. 
And we're talking churches that attract thousands of people uh, on, on a Sunday, usually over multiple services on multiple campuses. Um, these are wealthy churches that build their wealth on the backs of hundreds of volunteers who give their time and money. And they pull in multi-million dollar budgets. Uh, Hillsong, for instance, has planted over 80 churches around the world. I believe it's Australian budget. One figure I heard was that it's, it's up around $100 million a year. That's something that Gavin would love to have, I'm sure. The common theme in the secular media that is looking at all of this is how these churches have come to prioritise money and the reputation of celebrity pastors over the good of people. And as you hear the secular media tuck into the megachurch, it is hard to recognise in their description how this church can possibly be the bearer of the good news of Jesus. Well, our text in Ephesians 2 today gives us a blueprint of what the church should actually look like. Uh, Paul is laying bare for us the, the nature, the true nature of the invisible church, the church that we don't see, the church that's often um, obscured from vision and left unmentioned when you start looking at the floor plans of cathedrals and the budgets and the plans of megachurches. So here's a, a plan for church, a picture of church altogether different to either of these big churches. And to grasp the, the true nature of this church, we'll need to start at the, at the end with Paul's conclusion. Come to verse 19, where he says, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people, and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him... The whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. If you pay attention to what he's saying there, Paul slides very quickly through two different metaphors, a nation and a household, before landing on the metaphor of the church as a building, a temple, in fact. And the most important thing to notice about this particular building is that this is not a building constructed out of wood and stone. This is not an incorporated entity made up of budgets and five-year strategies. It's a building constructed entirely out of persons. The most important uh, person in this church, the chief cornerstone, is Jesus himself. Now, the chief cornerstone is, is the image of the kind of the first big block you would lay down at the base. And you take all the measurements and dimensions. This is where you start your work. And from this point, the building grows. And it's important to notice the foundation of this building is not laid upon the words of Jesus or the deeds of Jesus, but upon the person of Jesus, raised from the dead, seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling over all of creation. That's how we have met Jesus so far in Ephesians. And likewise, the rest of the foundation of this building is made up of the apostles and prophets, 
of the New Testament church. And again, commentators will tell you this isn't their teaching and their prophecy. This is their persons. We get a very similar picture to this in the book of Revelation where John sees the heavenly city coming down out of heaven and he describes it as a city with 12 foundation stones. And on each stone is written the name of one of the apostles. 12 gates and over each of the gates is a stone bearing the name of one of the sons of Jacob, of Israel. Now here's the point. God is a builder who is working with persons, with people. Because he's a personal God. The blueprint of the church is essentially a Trinitarian design. In him, we're told, in Christ, that is, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Similarly, in verse 18, for through Christ we have access to the, um, sorry, through Christ we have both have access to the Father by one spirit. The personal presence of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit defines what the church actually is. Here's the church invisible revealed. And it is made up of persons brought in and incorporated into the life of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, the great cathedrals of Europe were built by lords who spent a lot of their time wringing taxes and labour out of their population. And they didn't display a whole lot of concern for the ordinary people um, in their dominion because the general population were really there as resources to be exploited for the comfort and prosperity of their masters. The idea that the ordinary person would have some share in that comfort and prosperity was a pretty foreign idea to them. And the megachurch movement of our time is being criticised for exactly the same thing. Jeff Bullock, um, the original songwriter and original worship pastor for Hillsong, recently came out in public and criticised his old friends from Hillsong, pastors Bobby and Brian Houston. He catalogues the extravagant lifestyle they have lived, the mansions, the clothes, the cars, the overseas trips. And then he says, every cent of the Hillsong empire has been given to them by the sheep. If their theology was right, he says, and by that he means um, the, the prosperity teaching of Pentecostal churches, if their theology was right, Hillsong would be a congregation of millionaires. But it's not. It's just pastored by millionaires. You know, at the end of the day, many celebrity pastors don't scrub up with much better reputations than the lords of medieval Europe. Rather than being shepherds who tend the sheep, they often turn out to be the wolves who exploit the sheep. People who get lost in the vision for big buildings, big budgets and big reputation. But the true church, the church invisible, is nothing like that. And that's reflected in the second of the metaphors that Paul slides over so quickly, that we are members of God's household. The church is essentially family, not business. The language of church, like the language of prayer, is the language of family intimacy, of belonging, of being cared for, of having a concern and caring for the welfare of other family members. 
Because the whole point of a family is that it's organized around the central pillars of nurturing and nourishing people, not getting a job done. We'll hear a lot more about the church in the letter, as the letter to the Ephesians goes on. But the principal purpose of God's church that Paul spells out in chapter 4, verses 13, is this. That we should become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Becoming mature. That's the core function, the core purpose of the church. Jesus' command to his disciples in Matthew 28 in the Great Commission puts making disciples at the center of the mission. Again, nurturing persons to mature faith in Jesus is the central purpose, the central mission of the church. And that's how it ought to be among us. But you know, even smaller churches like St Barnabas can be drawn into the lure of the big, whether it's bigger buildings or bigger plans. And the moment we start strategizing around numbers, we become prey to the same temptation of making business and not people our priority. And I want to say if we wish to be an evangelizing church, a church participating in God's calling um, others into his kingdom, we have to take seriously the Trinitarian nature of the church in Ephesians 2. The church has God's family, God's building project in which people, in which the personal and the relational is the very reason for our existence. I, I grew up in the church. I can't remember a time when I wasn't in church, wasn't involved in church in some ways. So I've experienced a lot of things because I'm now starting to get old and I've got grey hairs. And one of the things I've experienced, one of the unfortunate things, are churches with an obsession for getting people through those doors but at the same time becoming blind to how those very doors become revolving doors. A church that starts to count how many bums are on seats but doesn't see the faces that belongs to those bottoms as important so long as the numbers stay the same or are going up, we don't care whether those people come or go. And the tragedy of that is I've seen way too many people walk out those doors and turn their back on church, but also on Jesus. Increasingly, since my youth, we've become a generation blinded by charismatic leaders, celebrity pastors... One of those celebrity pastors infamously boasted a conference a couple of years ago about the people he had thrown under the bus. He was talking about a couple of the elders in his church who were not on board with his vision and his plan. They were off mission, and so they went under the wheels. What had actually happened was they dared to question his views and his use of power. Well, I have to say, God's blueprint for the church couldn't be further from that sentiment. The church in Ephesians 2 is personal from top to bottom. It's family. Well, the third metaphor that Paul briefly skates through in verses 19 is actually the main metaphor that drives all of verses 11 to 18, that the church is a nation, that its members are citizens. 
He began back in verse 11 by saying, Remember, formerly you who are Gentiles by birth, remember at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Once excluded from citizenship, now fellow citizens with God's people. That's where the passage goes. Now, for Ephesian listeners, you have to understand only a minority of people that lived in the Roman Empire were actually Roman citizens. Most people governed by the Romans were excluded from the rights and the benefits that belonged to citizens. Citizenship was a privilege, a privilege for the very few. And citizenship was the dividing line then between the small group of privileged insiders and the vast mass of outsiders. Now, you might have experienced this. If you've ever rolled up to the border of the United States of America, um, you are going to be carefully scrutinized and closely questioned. They want to make sure that, number one, you're not a terrorist, and number two, you're not an illegal immigrant. They want to keep you out. The whole point of policing borders in modern nations, even like our own, is to protect the rights and the benefits of citizens who actually belong, to protect our way of life from those um, outside, from being overrun or threatened in some way. So it's a big thing for Paul to tell his listeners in the first century world that in Christ they've become citizens in God's kingdom. And that's telling us three things, really. The first place, citizens are insiders. Um, that means we rightfully belong. We have a right to be here. We enjoy all the privileges and the benefits that insiders have. That's exactly the same as belonging in a family, by the way. In the second place, Paul reminds us that being a citizen means we're part of a nation. We're part of a corporate entity. Now, God's plan for humanity has always been a nation-building exercise. Adam and Eve were to fill the earth. They were, they were to give birth to a community of people. Abraham was called, not to be a prophet with a message, but with Sarah, to be the parent of a nation, the parent of numerous nations, in fact. And under Moses, those promises to Abraham took form in the deliverance of the people of Israel from Egypt, a people that then, God then immediately constituted as a nation under his kingship. And then God's later covenant with King David followed this up with the promise of an eternal kingdom, a king who would maintain the order of the nation forever. These are the covenants of promise that Paul's alluding to in verse 12. Covenants, he says, that weren't abandoned in the ministry of Jesus, but are fulfilled in the ministry of Jesus. Because when Jesus rolled up on the scene, he came announcing the kingdom of God. So what's so important about a nation to God? Why would that be high on his agenda? Well, because a nation is all about coherence, right? People in a nation have a common identity. They share a common wealth. They aim for a common good and have a common concern. And that means everyone's included. No one's to be left behind. 
um, uh, nobody is to go under the bus, as it were. So we find in the law that God gave to Israel at Sinai a great many laws that were social laws. They were designed to protect and include everybody. The resources of the land that God was giving them, for example, the fields, the vineyards, the orchards, the waterways, they were shared out equitably amongst the nation um, and they were intended to remain in families. No one could ever be alienated from the source of production, that the source of livelihood in the land. Personal ownership was allowed, wealth was allowed, but no one was to generate wealth at somebody else's expense. And the wealthy were to ensure that no one was exploited in the production of wealth, and the wealth that was created was to overflow to the poor and the disadvantaged in the land. Those laws specifically forbade you from taking someone else's property, taking someone else's life, taking someone else's reputation. What was good for one was good for everybody. And it's precisely because Israel ignored these laws and carried on the affairs of their nation like the other nations, without justice, without mercy, without righteousness, that God sent them back into slavery. Well, the New Testament church is meant to be God's intended nation. And we are its citizens. There's actually a fourth metaphor in this passage that springs out of that in verses 15 to 16 that starts to get us to the nub of this. His purpose, we read at the end of verse 15, his purpose was to create in himself one new, human, new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile them, both of them, to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Paul's usual church, uh, usual church for the metaphor, his usual metaphor for the church is a body. Now, like the other metaphors that, that are used that marks Christian identity, this is a collective identity. And body's a brilliant metaphor to use for what we are. Because a body is living. It breathes, it eats, it digests, it moves. As soon as it stops doing any of those things, it dissipates. A body is the way that an organism relates to its environment. It has eyes and ears, it has hands and feet. A body is made up of many and diverse parts. Its members aren't carbon copies of each other. Each has their own unique uh, belonging, their own unique function, their own unique way of relating to the, arts, the other parts of the body. Body's a great metaphor, gets at this better than anything else. But body as a metaphor is a real challenge to our culturally ingrained view of ourselves and even our in culturally ingrained evangelical views of ourselves, where we see ourselves as saved individuals nurturing our own personal and private faith. But the truth is, in the gospel, we might be saved as individuals, but then as saved individuals, we're joined into the body of Christ, the church. Paul strongly criticised the Corinthian church for missing exactly this point in their theology. And he exposes the spirituality of the Corinthians at every turn as selfish, individualistic and divisive. 
And so, with a metaphor of a body, Paul brings us to the absolute center of what's going on in the church. He uses a word play on the word body to get at this. Because when you boil it down, the body of the church is created by the body of Jesus. The, bloke, the broken flesh and the shed blood of the cross. Eugene Peterson gets this whole passage into perspective by saying, the church is primarily the activity of God in Christ through the Spirit. Paul describes what's going on in these four metaphors we've been looking at uh, with nine active verbs. Nine active verbs which describe what God the Father and God the Son are doing. Statements like, he is at peace, he makes the two one, he destroyed the dividing barrier, he abolishes the law, he created one new humanity making peace, he reconciled the both of them, he put to death their hostility, he announced peace. Church is what God is doing, not what we are doing. Our participation in this activity, our participation in these four metaphors is described in a series of passive verbs. Things that describe what is being done to us and for us. We are brought near. We have access. We are being built. We are being joined together. We are being built together. Those are the verbs. Church is not what we are doing. Church is what is being done to us and for us by Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And the very centre of that activity, what makes the church church, what makes the church absolutely different to every other structure, organisation or social grouping is the cross of Jesus. The church is a new creation of God created through the flesh and the blood of Jesus at the cross. This is the how of Paul's description of church. This is how you make and grow a church. And in this passage, it all hangs on the word reconcile. The New Testament gives us several ways to reflect upon what the cross of Jesus does, what it accomplishes as sacrifice, as redemption, as forgiveness, as death and new birth, as adoption. But reconciliation is the act, sorry, reconciliation describes the act of God at the cross by which you create the church. The very basis of the word reconciliation means change. And the change here is the change that God brings into the nature of relationship between himself and us. We are changed from enemies to more than friends, we're changed to family. We are changed from outsiders to citizens, from alienated, disconnected, isolated individuals into an absolute architectural marvel, into a living, breathing body. And here's the dynamic of the cross at work. Jesus dies, rejected and alone, so we can belong. Jesus is taken outside the city, rejected by his nation, excluded as an enemy, so we can be family. He is crucified, 
outside the city so we can come into the city and be citizens. His body is broken so that we can be built into something whole. His body is killed so we can be brought from death to life and incorporated into a living body. Well, we began with a medieval cathedral, cathedral from the Middle Ages. Whatever else the church of the Middle Ages did and didn't really understand about the nature of church, it at least recognised this because at some point they understood in the building of a church uh, what the church was meant to be because they built their cathedrals in the shape of a cross. They understood the cross-shaped nature of the church. They understood that when the body of worshippers came in, they were sitting in Christ. They were incorporated in the cross. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, how do we express, how do we get our, our hands and minds and hearts around what it is that you have done? We praise you that raised from the dead, seated at the right hand of the Father, you are not distant, but you have um, created a church, a building you are raising in which you dwell by your spirit. We praise you that that's a more exciting thing, a more marvellous thing than many of the other things going on around us uh, on this beautiful Sunday. We praise you for the privilege of being insiders, citizens brought into the privilege of family. And we pray now that you would grow us, you would grow St Barnabas, you would grow this church, that we would become a people who give witness to the church invisible, the people around us, in our workplaces, in this community, in our state, would see the work you are doing, would see Jesus, would see the cross. Lord, grow your church, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.